1 Corinthians 6, we're in the middle of the section, so it's kind of hard to jump in to the second half of this chapter. Of course, it doesn't just kind of pop up out of nowhere. When Paul begins with, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, that's in following up what he just shared back in the first part of chapter 6. He went through a long list. If you look back at verse 9, dealing with issues of sexuality in chapter 5, dealing with issues of suing one another, conflict, improper conflict resolution in chapter 6, and challenging them about the severity of not resolving your conflicts with each other. He then lumps that in. He tells them, don't be deceived. Don't you know that the unrighteous, which is what they were being by not resolving their conflicts together, they were being unrighteous. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So he gives them this long list. We went over that list in a little bit of depth last week. We mentioned a few things. But then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he goes through that list. Some of those sexual sins, not all of them, homosexuality, lumped in there with fornication, which is that big, all-encompassing word for sexual immorality. It would have meant initially prostitution or soliciting prostitutes, which was a huge thing in Corinth, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But then it goes on to mean really any sexual immorality outside of marriage. And now you're going, wait a second, Pastor. Now I'm wondering why you didn't send out a message teaser yesterday. Is that because the message today is on sex? The answer is yes. We are in church and we're going to continue to talk about because we go through the whole Bible and because I think that the letter to the Corinthians is as relevant to us in America as it was to them in Corinth, this is valuable information for us. He tells them, here's this list of people who have these lifestyles, who have these ways of living, and these are things that are not compatible with the kingdom of God. So the great deception is that I can think that I'm safe, I'm okay with God, but then live in embracing these sinful lifestyles and behaviors. And it's not just sexual, but then there's thieves and covetous and drunkards. This is not about a one-time thing. I did it once and I stumble into it occasionally. This is about embracing of a lifestyle. And he says to them, such were some of you. This was your identity, but you've been washed. You've been changed. And so for Paul and for the Corinthians, change, transformation is not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. Or maybe three steps. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. So justified means that you were declared innocent. You gave Jesus your sin, and he gave you his righteousness. Now, was Jesus righteous? Was he perfect? Did he have a perfect relationship with God? Say yes. Yes. So if that gets attributed to your life, then what could God punish you for? His perfection is attributed to you. That's what it means to be justified. You've been justified. So then the natural question, especially when you bring that kind of grace, you know, Paul destroys performance-based religion. It's not about performance, not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. You bring that grace-based message into a city like Corinth that is teeming with sexual immorality and with drunkenness. When we went through the introduction to Corinthians, we talked about the fact that to Corinthianize meant to be an immoral person and a drunk. So if if you knew someone who lived that kind of life, you'd say, man, they're such a Corinthian. How about that for a statement about your city? So these things were synonymous 
for the kind of life that was lived in Corinth. And so as Paul is dealing with the people in the city, some of them were getting saved and their lives were being transformed. They were no longer living for being a thief. They were no longer living for the material world. They were no longer living for their sexual perversion, as he says here. They were no longer living for their sexual sin. They were washed. They were cleansed. You know, it's interesting as we look at life in Corinth, and I said there's a lot of comparison to life in America. We have to think about, as we look ahead into verse 12, we're going to see this repetition of the word body, your body. And we might think, well, this next section is about sexual immorality, but it's really about the body. That's sexual immorality. And what we think about sex in our culture is directly related to what we think about our bodies. So really, Paul is going to undercut the issue in the discussion of sexual morality. He's going to take that down one more layer, and he's going to say to the Corinthians and to us, let's talk about what is your philosophy about your body? Now, you've probably never even thought about that before, have you? Have you ever thought about that? You have. Some of you have. Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you haven't. I got to thinking about it. What is, in American culture, what is the view of our current culture on the body? Now, how many of you have seen an uptick in an uprising in the number of tattoos we see? Have you noticed a distinct increase in the number of tattoos? So I think that maybe that speaks to the fact that, you know, I'm not condemning you for having a tattoo. I'm just saying we're recognizing that we use our bodies as a way to express ourselves. Even the discussion of gender identity says, well, I feel like my identity on the inside doesn't match who I am on the outside, so therefore I have to change the outside to match who I believe I am on the inside. So my body then again has to properly express what I feel is on the inside. So our bodies, in a sense, expressions. Some people push their bodies to the limit for the sake of glory. Think about the rise of extreme sports. I mean, it's not good enough just to jump out of an airplane. Now i got to put on a squirrel suit. Have you seen those guys? They put on this flying suit. It's uh, made out of the same stuff a parachute is made out of. And you open your arms up and it's a big, it looked like a flying squirrel, like a bat. And they jump out of an airplane. And guess what kind of speeds they reach? 226 miles an hour soaring through the air in a squirrel suit. Go figure. But we push the body. One guy I read about did five back-to-back Ironman triathlons. Most of us, yay, all of us, <laughs> would struggle to get through one. I mean, an Ironman triathlon is that two-mile swim, roughly I'm rounding off here, a 100-mile bike ride, and a marathon. And he did one every day for five days. That's pushing the body to the limits, pushing ourselves to the extreme. Well, millennials, from what I was looking into as I was studying about these things, millennials tend to have an obsession with the care of the body, self-care. There's an uprise in how millennials are caring for their bodies. They're more involved in personal improvement commitments than any generation before them. They spend twice as much time as boomers on self-care essentials, workout regimens, diet plans, life coaching, therapy, and even apps to improve their personal well-being. The millennials are also known as a more narcissistic generation, more selfies, more eating disorders, more difficulties in care about how I look, how other people perceive me, Facebook issues, all those things related to these self-centered kind of behaviors And that goes back to what I really feel about my body. So how does that stuff translate into the area of sexuality? Well, it turns out that nowadays, fewer people are choosing to get married, more choosing to just cohabitate. And even that cohabitation is becoming, well, it's an open relationship. Do you know what I mean when I say open relationship? Now, you've come to know, as I've come to know, that when you say to someone the word marriage, you have to now define that. We used to understand what the word marriage meant, but now marriage takes on many different forms in our culture. 
from same-sex marriage to open marriage. And open marriage is a marriage where, well, we're married, but we have an understanding that you can't meet all my needs. And in many cases, it's sexual needs. You can't meet all my sexual needs, and I can't meet your sexual needs. So therefore, we have other partners that we allow in our relationship. So it's just ordained adultery is all it is. Call it what you want. It's a welcomed and embraced form of adultery that is now called marriage. Did you see the root of that is that, well, I have needs that you can't meet. And because you can't meet them, I need to find other people to, you can follow it, right? To meet my needs. Because my body has desires and on and on we go. So really it all boils down to what we think about our body. Is my body for me? Is it my body to fulfill the desires of my body? The Greeks believed that all that mattered was the soul. The body didn't really matter. The the body, that low view of the body and that it had desires and you just kind of had to keep it satisfied until you died. And then your soul would go on to the underworld. Matter of fact, they buried you in Greek culture with a coin in your mouth to pay the ferryman in the underworld. Now, I don't know how inflation has affected the cost of that these days, but maybe now it's Uber. They use Uber for the underworld. I don't know. But this is just kind of to give us a mooring for understanding not just the Corinthian culture, because what do we care about the Corinthians, right? We don't live in Corinth. We live in Fluvanna. We don't live in 60 AD. We live now. So do the things here apply to us? I would say absolutely they do, because I believe that Corinthian culture is very, 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 very similar to American culture. So I want to say, as we read these things, I think we need to pay careful attention to what the message that God is bringing uh, to us today. So he then transfers from being justified, and then the question is, if we're justified, then does it really matter what we do with our bodies? I mean, does my behavior really matter if I'm saved by grace? And Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. When he says all things are lawful for me, he seems to quote a common saying that they would have had. They would have said to one another, hey, all things are lawful for us. That's how they would have justified in a corrupt culture that then mixes in the grace of God. They would have justified sin by saying, hey, all things are lawful for us. So they got something that Paul said. Paul told them, hey, you're not under the law anymore. It's not about rules and regulations and food you can eat and food you can't eat and kosher living and all. It's not about all that. We have a different conversation in the church. We don't talk about what's the law say, what are our rights? That's kind of what we want to know when it comes to sin is, do I have the right to have a beer? Do I have the right to have 10 beers? I mean, where do I cross the line? Because we want to walk as close as we can to the line. And that's where we get into legalism. Well, how short can my skirt be and still be allowable? And how long can my hair be? Can I wear a hat? Can I not wear a hat? What can I do? What can I do? What's the law say? And Paul brought to them grace. He said, it's not about law. So he doesn't argue with them and say, your understanding is wrong. He doesn't say that. He clarifies it for them because they used it to corrupt their thought process in terms of what it means to be a Christian. All things are lawful for me, he says, but all things are not helpful. That's the question we begin to ask as Christians. Not, can I do it, but should I do it? Not, can I do it, but how will it affect me? Will it help me walk closer to God? Or will it take me away from God? Will it be beneficial to the community I'm part of? Or does it just benefit me alone? These are the questions we ask. I remember when our kids were becoming teenagers and our son would come and say, hey, dad, can I do this? Can I do that? And if I say yes, and he does it, and it doesn't go well, then I get the blame. We know how that goes, parents, right? It's our fault because we said yes. I'm not going to play that game anymore. You're getting to be an adult. 
in a couple of years, you're going to be in college, and I'm not going to be there to tell you what you can and can't do. And then you're going to have a job, and I'm not going to be there to tell you what you can and can't do. You're going to have to make decisions for yourself. And you're going to have to decide and recognize that decisions have consequences, and I can't lay the law down for you. You've got to go to God. And you've got to ask, not can I, but should I? Can I party on Friday night and still get up for work on Saturday? Maybe you can, but maybe you shouldn't. Where's God in all this? That's what Paul's asking. How do I handle my Christian freedom? All things are lawful for me or in my power, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And the word power is the Greek word exousia. It means ruling power. It means mastery over. It means control of. And it means the power of decision. And see, we live in the culture of my body, my decision. I decide what I do with my body. It's my body. I can do with it whatever I want. We come to church. We do a spiritual thing. But when I leave here, ultimately, I'm going to make the decision about how I live and what I do with my body. It's my body. You know that's the cultural standpoint right now. My body, my rights, my choice. It's just about me. Well, exousia means this ruling power, this power to decide. And so sometimes you think you have mastery over something. You have the power to decide, but you've got into it and it's become an addiction and now it has power over you. You see, real freedom is not the freedom to do something, but the freedom from doing something. And if you can't put it down, if you can't turn it off, if you can't lay it aside, then maybe it has power over you and you don't have power over it. And maybe then it's not beneficial. All kinds of addictions in the world we live in. Sexually related, alcohol, drugs, all that. Opioids, you know, that's all over the news. All things are lawful for me, but that's not what we use to make our decisions. I will not be brought under the power of any. Then he goes on to quote another quote from them, verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. So the first section, he says, hey, all things are lawful, but I got to think about how it affects me and those around me. And then the second section, he's going to talk about the future, how what I do now relates to the future. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Amen to that, right? We were built for food. In the garden, God put Adam and Eve there. He built Adam out of the ground, the dust of the earth, and he breathed life into his nostrils. They put him in the garden with all this food, and the food was yummy. That's a translation. That's my own translation. The food was yummy. It looked good. And he said, eat. So in the garden, the command was to eat. Before it was, don't eat. And he made Adam's body to process yummy food like cheesecake and Briar's ice cream. Now, when you get a hankering, your body is built for food. You need food. Food is fuel for the body. And so God has given you with that a sensor that says, hey, you need to eat. Now, some of our sensors are broken. It goes off way too often. But you got a sensor that says you need to eat. And what do you do when that sensor goes off? You hit the fridge. What do we have to eat? I need to get something to eat because I need fuel for my body. And no one would ever look at you and say, you sinner, how dare you go eat when you're hungry? I mean, this is the logic. So what I'm showing you is the logic that was prevailing in the church in Corinth. Hey, Pastor Paul, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. God made us to fulfill the natural desires of our body. And food is an example. And Paul says that may be true, food for the body and the body for food, but... These are temporary situations. He says, but God is going to destroy both it, what? Stomach, and them, foods. Do you think in heaven we're going to sit around going, is it snack time yet? I hope we got pudding around here somewhere. Cereal. It's got to be cereal with milk. 
any serial addicts out there? I don't think we're going to be worried about that in heaven. Now, our resurrected bodies, see, this is the challenge, that we will have a resurrected real body. When Jesus was resurrected, was his old body still in the tomb, but now he had a new body? Was there a body in the tomb or was the tomb empty? The tomb was empty. So he kept his body, but something about his body was new. He could walk through walls. He could appear and disappear. And then he's on the beach and he's like, hey, what are you guys cooking up over there? Let's have some fish together. So he eats. So he can eat in his resurrected, glorified body. He can eat. But that's not the focus of the body. He does that to show that he's not a disembodied spirit. He's not a ghost. So you can have a real body. And the point that Paul is making is that you don't live for these things because the temporary situation, food, yes, food for the body, the body for food, but this whole scenario is temporary. And then he moves on to the real gist of his argument in the next part of that verse. He says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So do you catch their faulty reasoning? They would say food for the body, body for food. There's a desire. It's meant to be met. We're designed for it. God designed us. Therefore, when we eat, we eat to the glory of God. Amen, church? We eat to the glory of God. But then they would take that same thing and misapply it to sex. They would say, hey, if you got a desire, God made you for that desire. Look how we're created. You should fulfill that desire. Remember, they're in a hedonist culture that said pleasure is the highest form of human happiness. Live for pleasure. And so if my body has a desire, then sex for the body and the body is for sex. That's what they would have said. That's how they would have completed the comparison. Are you with me in this? Now, let me clarify. Our bodies are made for sex. Amen, pastor. We know this. In the garden, Adam and Eve created as sexual beings. See, the church has, through the years, really made sex in some ways sinful and to be not discussed and not talked about. And that's why many of you are still going, I can't believe you, I invited friends today. And this is the topic of the sermon. Like I said, I'm just going through the Bible. He told them, eat And he told them, be fruitful and multiply. And that was a sexual command. So we recognize that it's not about sexuality in general. He says the body is not for sexual immorality. The body is for sexual pleasures within a certain context. What context is that? It's the context of marriage. And Paul will get to that later on. Again, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. But context is everything. Just like a fire in a fireplace. It's getting to be fall, getting cold outside. We have a fireplace in our house. I love to heat our house with wood stove, with the fire. It's great. But you bring that fire out of the wood stove and put it in the middle of the living room, now we got trouble. So you keep that fire, that sexual passion, that fire in a marriage, it's wonderful. It's perfect. It should be enjoyed and embraced. But you bring that sexual passion out of the marriage into an incestual relationship, into an adulterous relationship, into a non-committed relationship, and now you've got fire. And it's not healthy and it's not good. So I just wanted to clarify, Paul says the body is not for sexual immorality, but what's it for instead? It's for the Lord. Now that adds this new challenge for the Christians. Your body is not to fulfill your pleasures, but to fulfill your obedience to the Lord and your relationship with Him. That's the relationship that matters. That's the relationship that trumps the other ones. And he goes on to say, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up 
by his power. So he transfers that to the long-term relationship of what happens after we die. God raised up the Lord, and guess who else he's going to raise up? Me and you. So the sexual relationship is just here on earth. We're not angels. We don't become angels when we die, but we're like angels in what way? In that we don't marry or given in marriage. We're not going to be concerned with those things in heaven. These are temporary things. So Paul is trying to get them to stop living for the things of the present time, the pleasure, the pursuits of this time, and living for eternity. Because if you live just for the now and the sinful pleasures, then you miss the later. That's what Paul's trying to say to them. He's trying to show them their flawed logic. And God both raised up the Lord, and how did he raise him up? With a new body. And he's going to raise us up too by his power. How? With a new body. Paul's going to spend a whole chapter, chapter 15, explaining to them that there is a resurrection. Because this behavior, and even in our own culture, look, we've got a generation that's been raised up thinking that there is no God, there is no truth, there's no absolute right or wrong, Whatever feels good, that's what you do. Whatever desire you have, you please it. Because there's no judgment, there's no heaven, there's no hell. And that's what many in Corinth thought. And therefore they adopted the saying, hey, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But listen, listen, listen. The natural byproduct of teaching children that there is no God and there is no right and no wrong is self-fulfillment. This is all there is. Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. I got to get it all now. And the message of the gospel is radically different. The message of the gospel is the best is yet to come. So he would say, and we would even say, there's some urges and some desires that we should say no to. Just because it's a desire of my body doesn't mean I should say yes to it. God both raised the Lord and also will raise us up by his power. We're not angels, but we're like angels in that there's no marriage, no sexuality there in heaven. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Now remember, it wasn't just the temple of Aphrodite and the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. If you wanted to keep the gods happy, which is what you had to do to have a pleasing afterlife, you had to keep the gods happy. So if you wanted to please the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, you would go and worship at the temple of Aphrodite, 1,000 temple prostitutes. You would bring your offering, a.k.a. money, And what you would receive in turn is sexual worship. That was the way to please Aphrodite. That was how you worship. And Paul says it's prostitution. That's what it is. And he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? You've been joined to Christ. For Paul, everything is about my relationship now with Jesus. That's the relationship that saved me. That's the relationship that redeemed me. That's the relationship that gifted me. That's the relationship that will sustain me into eternity my connectedness with Christ. And he says to you and I, don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Did you see what he just said? Now, I don't know what you think about sin and what happens when you sin, when you try to go to your secret place, your private thing, or you do whatever it is where no one else is looking. But Paul says Christ doesn't like wait at the door for you. He says, you go do your thing and I'll wait over here. And when you're done, you know, come on back because you probably won't come on back. Because of the shame and the guilt of all those things, you'll just stop coming to church because you're now involved in a a life-dominating sin. But this says that because Christ said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, that whatever it is that you do, he's with you. So when you sit down to watch a movie, think about Jesus as your Siamese twin. There's a picture that's going to haunt you. Jesus is now your Siamese twin. You've united your life to him. You're going to go, hey, let's go watch a movie. And so you sit down to watch the movie and you turn it on and you know, guys, shouldn't be watching this. 
And you look at Jesus and you go, are you enjoying this? And he's like, mm-mm, I don't like this. And he's got his eyes hidden, you know. Tell me when it's over. I mean, Jesus is the picture of purity and holiness. And he doesn't leave you when you sin. He's with you. He's always with you. Really, that's meant to be encouraging in the sense that I understand that my relationship with him is more secure. He's not scared away by my sin. He actually wants me to remember that he's with me. I imagine him looking at me and going, do we really need to watch this? Let's go talk. Can we just go talk? Can we go spend some time together? We can watch something else. We've all done it though. We've watched something. Oh, I shouldn't be watching this. I should not be watching this. We call it entertainment. It's really voyeurism because we're watching sexual acts all over the movie. We call it entertainment these days. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Paul says, no way. Why would we do that? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he uses the word joined. Where does that ring a bell? Where does that verse ring a bell that I just read to you? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Who said that? That's back in Genesis. That's marriage terminology. Evidently, there's something about sexuality that is meant not just for pleasure, not just for procreation, but for bonding. Part of the two becoming one, part of it, not all of it, part of it, is wrapped up in this thing God has created called human sexuality. And I read these things and I go, you know, there's a lot I don't understand in life and what God says. And there's things we don't understand in our culture. We think we can just hook up and have it be done with. Cheap sex, those kind of things. And Paul's going to say, you don't know what you're doing to yourself. How those things distort and corrupt and sear a conscience. But he says the important thing to remember is we've created a union with Christ and that union should be the most important union in our lives. It's interesting that two guys were walking through the woods and they come upon this deep mine shaft. And they look down and say, man, that thing looks really deep. I can't see the bottom. How deep do you think it is? So, I don't know. Let's find out. So they take a pebble and they drop it in the mine shaft. And they listen. They don't hear it hit bottom. It must be really deep. We need something bigger. So they get a boulder, bring it over together and they put it up there and they drop it in and they listen. No, they still don't hear it hit the bottom. They say, man, we really need to get something big. So they see over in the woods in some weeds, a big railroad tie. You know what a railroad tie is, big giant piece of wood. And they take it over and they drop it in the hole. They hoist it up, drop it in, and they listen. And they don't hear anything. And they're waiting and they're waiting. And all of a sudden this goat comes out running, tearing out of the woods, flying right past them, jumps up and jumps right in the hole. And they looked at each other and thought, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. A goat just runs out of the woods, jumps in the hole. So they're pondering what just happened. And a couple minutes later, a farmer comes out of the woods. And he says, hey, I'm looking for my goat. I'm wondering if you guys maybe have seen my goat. And they say, you know, that's the craziest thing. Your goat just came along and he ran, he ran right past us. He jumped in the hole. And the farmer said, no, 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 that can't be my goat. My goat is chained to a railroad tie. <laughs> I know that's bad. <laughs> I do have a point though. Who had authority, the goat or the railroad tie? The railroad tie was the heavier influence. They had a relationship. They were joined together. And in that relationship, it was the railroad tie that had authority over the goat. In our lives, we are united together with Christ. And Paul's idea is that in that relationship, it should be Christ that pulls the weight, that tells us where to go, that brings us where we need, not dropping us in a hole, but is the authority in our lives. Remember, I, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power 
of any. So Paul's warning them about the great power that sexual immorality can have in a human being's life. Look what he goes on to say. He says, flee sexual immorality. I mean, run away from it. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Don't play with it. Don't mess with it. If the computer's a problem, shut it down, hit it with a sledgehammer, whatever you have to do. If it's the woman you work with, do like Joseph. Flee. Don't talk to her. Don't have good conversation. Don't go out for lunch together. It's dangerous. It's destructive. Flee sexual immorality, he says. David, King David, embraced it. Ruined his career. He was still a man after God's own heart, but there was consequences to pay. Joseph, in the Old Testament, he ran. And the wording is, have the habit of fleeing without delay or without waiting. Why? Because every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So what Paul says, there's something about sexual sin that is different than all the other sins. It's in a class by itself. Now you would say, well, doesn't alcohol a sin against my own body? Isn't drugs a sin against my own body? And in a sense, yes, but not in the sense Paul is saying. In a sense, the alcohol is acting on your body, but in sexual sin, your body is the weapon and the target. In sexual sin, you sin against your own body. I could have brought you research. I have a bunch of stuff at home, but I knew we were going to be pressed for time. So you can do the research on this, but just what things like pornography, things like adultery, sexual sin, what it does to your hormones, what it does to your thought process, what it does to your conscience, what it does in your mind and in your brain. It begins to sear your conscience so that you're less sensitive to other things. That's why with sexual immorality also is sometimes drinking and drugs and these sorts of things are, look, I know what that lifestyle is like. I worked in bars for years. I've seen it. I've watched it. So the challenge for our young people in this culture that they're growing up in, how do they flee from sexual immorality when it's all around them, when people hunting them on the internet to introduce them at very young ages, five and six, to introduce them to pornography at very young ages? I encourage the young people, date in groups. Don't go out individually. Don't welcome temptation. Date in a group where you're safer. He says to the church, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So again, continue to plead with them, what is the reason for sexual purity? What is the reason for care in these areas of our lives? He says, it's because your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You'd look around Corinth, and there's Aphrodite's temple, and there's Zeus's temple, and there's this other temple over there. they got temples all over the place. But you can't point to a building and say, well, there's the temple of God. There's the place where God is worshipped. There's the place where people know about this God. Because it's the church. It's us. It's you individually. Your body, he says. Talk about raising, raising the view of our bodies. That my body's not a throwaway. Girls in here need to hear that. Young girls need to hear that. Your body's not a throwaway. You don't need to use sex to get love. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the place where the Spirit of God resides as a Christian. It's not a separate thing from your Christian life. God's made a deposit in your life. By the way, my body, my choice, he says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you are not your own? I learned something two weeks ago. Went to the pregnancy center dinner. How many of you have ever been to a pregnancy center dinner? Great time, great work that they're doing. And the woman who was speaking was talking about the Roe versus Wade court decision. How many of you have heard Roe versus Wade? Jane Roe was not her real name. That was a legal pseudonym for who she really was. And I don't remember her real name. But what I didn't know is that it took so long to hear that case in the court 
that by the time it got through, she'd already had her baby. She did not have an abortion. And the baby was given up for adoption. What I also didn't notice, the whole thing, she was a 20-something-year-old girl caught in the middle of this thing. It was really based on lies. She was not raped, and there was not all these things that were said. It was all based on lies. She became a Christian, and now, till her death, was one of the strongest pro-life advocates trying to get overturned the very law that bore her pseudonym, her name. Did you know that? I just learned that. But again, we have some cultural things. Look, I know I'm talking about things that have way bigger ramifications. Just to say that our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies has spiritual implications for now and for the future. And that's why he's saying to them, don't you know, can you imagine Paul pleading with them, don't you understand that it may seem fun and it may seem glorious and it may seem like a lot of pleasure, but boy, is it connected to a lot of pain. Anybody could say amen to that? And he says, verse 20, to me, to you, he says, for you were bought at a price. You, not just you, the spiritual you, not just you, your mind, but you, your body. To be redeemed, that's what this means. This is a slave terminology. Paul pictures Jesus going down to the slave market, finding you attached to, chained to all of your sin, sexual and otherwise. And his compassion on you saying, I want to buy that one. I want to set that one free. Paying not gold, not silver, but what? His precious blood. His own life. Setting you free so that you wouldn't have to say, well, freedom doesn't mean fulfilling those things. Freedom means freedom from those things. And he says, therefore, glorify God in your spirit and in your body, which are God's. So many other things we could do. You know, I was sitting at the men's retreat on Friday night, 46 guys, 43 guys at the men's retreat, and I'm thinking, you know, what did Friday night used to mean for me? For me, it meant making money because I would go to the bar and work as a bouncer while everybody else was spending money and being stupid and getting drunk and hooking up and all those things. And I thought, here I am on a Friday night with a group of guys that say, you know, I'm going to be worshiping God tonight. And I thought about, my mind began to wander to all the Friday night people out there in Fluvanna County and Virginia, all over the country, thinking, how many people are getting drunk tonight? How many people are going to drink and drive tonight? How many people are going to commit adultery tonight? How many people are going to hook up tonight? How many girls are going to get raped tonight? I just thought about that. I thought how blessed I was to be able to be here worshiping God with my body. I'm set free from that stuff. I don't live for those things anymore. These pleasures, these desires, they're real and they're challenging. But Jesus says, such were some of you. But you were washed. You've been invited into a relationship with the living God. That is life-changing. It's desire-changing. Amen, church? It's a heavy sermon today, wasn't it? But I think you guys can bear it, can't you? <laughs>